Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today we are talking about what we hope is the transition out of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotchair. And this is Rural Health Rising. So, J.J., we are seeing a lot of changes uh, related to COVID guidance and recommendations over the last several weeks. The first time, I think, since it was initially recommended for people to wear masks in indoor settings, um, it is no longer the recommendation for most settings. That, I think, is a big indicator that we are headed in a good direction. Um, so, you know, from a from a hospital leadership perspective, this affects a lot of the work that we're doing, right? I mean, how does this impact a rural hospital to now navigate? Before we were navigating the pandemic, now we're navigating this kind of interim period of we're pretty sure we're okay mm-hmm. to start doing some other things. You know, Rachel, it impacts just about everything we do. And, and I'll just take you through a little quick journey. As you know, and our listeners may not, you know, we run a skilled nursing facility. Mm-hmm. And during covid Skilled nursing facilities received significant oversight and, you know, a lot of eyes were on skilled because of what had happened out in other states mm-hmm. uh, beyond Michigan. And I just, think was it maybe Seattle area initially that there was yeah, the first real nursing home outbreak. And, right. Yeah. And then the underreporting and, you know, all these issues. So, so what happened is that in Michigan... Uh, our governor uh, made it a point to make sure that there's additional regulations placed on skilled nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of work has been done during the pandemic, not only to safeguard our community, but also to safeguard our patients at the hospital on two different fronts. Number one is on skilled nursing. The other is on the acute care side. Mm -hmm. You know, so really taking care of those patients, uh, whether it is outpatient, you know, or it's inpatient for discharge. And so for us, it's, uh, I feel like a tremendous weight was lifted a few weeks ago. Yes. Now, my friends in healthcare tell me, don't, you know, just be cautious. Don't let your guard down too early. Well, no one's letting their guard down. Right. We still talk about the importance of vaccination. Uh, We talk about the importance of making sure that if you're sick, don't go out. If you're around individuals that are immunocompromised, please make sure that you're you're not around them. If you are, you know, consider wearing a mask to be kind because you don't know, you know, what, what condition you're in to be spreading it to them. We've said that, Rachel, throughout the pandemic, as well as as we talk about it every year during flu. Take simple safeguards to help others. So my friends are telling me, please make sure, you know, just don't let your guard down. Maybe it's too soon. Rachel, we've done a tremendous amount of studying reviews. We've looked at our community specifically because that's really all that I need to look at before we, quote unquote, lower our guard. Right. And so when we're looking at it in Hillsdale. Uh, you know, the numbers have dwindled to almost zero inpatient. Mm-hmm. A community transmission rate has dropped significantly. At one point, we were over 30 percent. Now we're at nine and eight. Um, so the numbers are very, very low. And we're starting to see less and less of those patients presenting in the emergency department and even in primary care. So mm-hmm. we're feeling as if this is a sense that we're coming out of it. And right. we need to celebrate that, number one. Yes. Number two, as I said, we Don't let our guard down in the sense of as community members, it's important to remember to get our booster and to get vaccinated if we're not. Those are all strategies that we're going to be talking about from now until a long time. Right. You know, maybe forever, forever, you know, just as we do with the flu. Right. I would assume that it's going to have the same type of focus 
from healthcare mm-hmm. that the flu does every year. We just know we have to do it every year. Right. We get together as a committee and we start talking about, all right, let's talk about our flu precautions. Let's talk mm-hmm. about what units are we shutting down every year for a decade that I've been here. We have shut down our obstetrics unit and the skilled nursing to visitors. Yep. So when the pandemic occurred for COVID, it was no shock to us on how to accomplish this. Right. 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 And we've just always done that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the regulations that have occurred in skilled nursing and on the inpatient side, they're starting to ease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with your community transmission and some other right. things. But ultimately, we're seeing a lower number of cases uh, coming into our community and that are being reported to the health department. So we can honestly say that we feel comfortable now at some of the measures that the CDC has taken, mm-hmm. and in, including in the state of Michigan, MDHHS, and other providers who are looking at the pandemic and saying, all right, it's time to ease the restrictions. Right. And we've done that. As you know, in Michigan, uh, the masks have been primarily removed from everything but healthcare. Right, right. Uh, that is the one uh, The one caveat. I mean, we healthcare is probably always going to be the the carve out if there's anything related to an infectious disease uh, with, you know, regulation and um, rules or recommendations and, and things like that, which speaking of, there are a lot of different entities that we have to keep track of mm-hmm. the different rules and regulations that we need to be abiding by. And that can almost be a full-time job, right? Oh, my goodness. You know, Rachel, I I reflected with, you know, the past 12 months of all of the state, federal inspectors, and even some local ones that we had throughout our facility. Oh, we had Uh, so many surveys. uh, I mean, seven in skilled nursing. Right. Uh, Then we couple that with on the inpatient side. You know, our triennial accreditation, triennial now behavioral health accreditation, all of these things occurring. Nothing stopped. Right, right. You know, they didn't go virtual with these. Yeah. Now, that's on top of already the the health inspectors we get here every every year. It's on top of the fire marshal that comes several times a year. Right. This, this is all occurring. Right. And we're in the middle of a pandemic fighting, you know, a very significant uh, challenge for our community and, and trying to push back, you know, to some of the mindset that we faced early on of, you know, is this real? Why right. are you doing this? Remember all that. Yeah. And so it does feel kind of good to not be engaging all the time in discourse about is COVID real? Remember when we started right. that? Oh, yeah. Oh, and then yeah. is the vaccine a hoax? And we've moved beyond those stages, right? right. Those who right. want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated. Uh, those who are absolutely steadfast against it, unless they have some major life event for them or their family, mm-hmm. they're pretty much aligned where they're going to be aligned. And now we have to live right. in this post-pandemic world, right. All right, knowing that it's still going to be with us at some level. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, you know, healthcare, as we come out of this, we look at it all around the United States and we stepped up to the plate. Yeah. You know, hospitals, small and large, uh, started to implement vaccine clinics. Health departments weren't doing that initially. You know, they were calling on their big systems. Why? Because it's tens of thousands of people. Right. You know, a health and department of four or five people volunteering. Right. They don't have the resources, have the resources to do it at the same scale. No. And we did. You know, Use Hills does an example. Mm-hmm. We launched a partnership with a college. We got thousands of people through mm-hmm. in venues mm-hmm. and locations around the county. And so what it showed was a resolve of healthcare. Sadly, during the same period, Healthcare workers, nurses, not even direct patient care, they became what we would say disenfranchised. They mm-hmm. became burnt out. They overwhelmed, became overwhelmed. Exhausted. Yeah. And so they found themselves at a very, very difficult road because, number one, we didn't know when it was going to end. Right. You know, right. and I just want to be for clarification purposes, 
it hasn't ended yet, right. you know, but we're there. Uh, but we're, all, We feel like we're moving that we're direction. Culture, yeah. right? But ultimately, they didn't know it was going to end. So you're looking at, hey, I was going to retire in two, two years anyway. I'm going to go early. And so healthcare right. began to go through some significant challenges. Not only were you facing the pandemic and seeing patient volumes we've never experienced before, protocols we've never had to implement, surgeries that were shut down in many states, some even not too far from here, even recently, mm-hmm. were still shut down. Right. Uh, and so staffing became another crisis. So not only are we dealing with COVID as a crisis, but staffing was. How do you staff your units? Well, if you can't staff your units, you decrease the number of beds, which means you can't serve your population. Right. Which means patients are boarded in the emergency department. We saw more of that. Then what's mm-hmm. the other compounding a problem? Well, ambulance services are almost dried up. Right. Because they're in a There's major crunch as huge well. Shortages in EMS. Yeah. So you can't get patients out of your facilities. And even if you could, you couldn't find other beds because other hospitals were experiencing the same thing. Right. So there's all of these challenges. And now we're rising from those ashes. And you and I had Scott Becker on our program not mm-hmm. too long ago, who shared with us the alarming number of hospitals that are at risk, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and of, of, of foreclosure and of you know closing their doors. And some of them bankrupt. Some of them will sell out to larger systems to get out of debt. Some of them will just absolutely close, just period. Right, right. No cash cash on hand. And so the pandemic has brought the best, and sadly, it's brought the worst. What you and I set out to do, we didn't, when you first started working for Hillsdale Mm -hmm, Hospital, mm -hmm. we had no dream that there would be a global pandemic. It was was the fall of 2019 that we first started talking about it. So we were six months away from hearing, uh, really hearing in a lot about yeah. COVID. Our purpose was we wanted to educate the rural communities, the legislators, the big systems, the cities, that rural health is needed in our communities. It will sustain your communities. But who would have ever dreamed that we would escalate it this fast through the pandemic? Because right. what you and I were predicting is 10 years. Well, that was that unfortunately was put on a fast track. Right. COVID came. Remember, COVID came before there were any uh, federal subsidies or any grants given. Right. Right. A lot of hospitals during those first several months struggled to make payroll. Mm -hmm. And some of those hospitals closed. Yeah. And so we had a, a guest on our program who said, you know, during the pandemic, you know, not not as many alarming number of hospitals have closed. That's true. The provider mm-hmm. relief funds did assist that, the PPE, right. you know. They the, probably, those funds probably sustained some hospitals that absolutely. were on the brink. They were and the if brink. it weren't for those funds, you know, but also the the pandemic created an additional need for those funds. So it's not that they're now on financial footing just because they didn't close their doors that year, right? Absolutely. And so now they sustained it through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now they have to face it in the world of what we were just told, you know, not too long ago, which is all of the COVID funding has dried up. Right. We're not expecting that as a safety net anymore. There's no more safety nets. Right. So we have to do it on our own. Now, how do you do that in an environment where nurse shortages are still existing? Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to talk about that at a future episode about recruitment and retention and all those things. But ultimately, we're faced with what we knew we were going to face probably in a decade, but it's now been accelerated. Right. And so, Rachel, it brought the best and it brought the worst. Mm-hmm. But what I'm most excited about is that we can, you know, we can continue doing the things that we need to do to take care of our patients every day. And we're looking at new service lines. We're looking at other opportunities. I think it's a great opportunity right now to redefine hospitals. Mm-hmm. It is. A lot of hospitals found out that they didn't have to physically come to work 
you know, in some right. of their backroom right. functions. And you know what? That saves time, cost, recruitment, a lot of opportunities right. there. Uh, we found out through that that we can form partnerships for GPOs to purchase PPE. Mm-hmm. Right. We found ways that we could communicate with other hospitals through hospital systems to ensure that we could share what's called bed information. So mm-hmm. I know how many beds your hospital has and you know how many beds my hospital has open. And when I want to transfer a patient, I don't have to go through a long process. I can look up on the sc- computer screen. I can say, oh, Rachel has five mm-hmm. beds open. Let's call over Rachel and get these patients over there. So a lot of great things. Right happen with coordinated efforts. And it always, you know, the American people have always shown a resolve Mm -hmm. whenever there's a significant catastrophic event. And this certainly was. But healthcare, we had to come together. And uh, during the same period, there were some opportunistic uh, individuals out there wanting to buy hospitals or sell hospitals or or be threatened with merger and acquisition. Well, you better do it now. And then they did hold a certain power over those hospitals, which is very concerning because the purpose of why we're doing what we're doing with this program is is to bring attention to the reality that rural health is struggling. Right. And we have been for over a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. payer mix uh, is no better in our communities. Right. In fact, as you lose jobs and industries, it looks much different. It begins to look like Medicaid and more Medicare. And so you don't make your money off of those type of payers, but we have to serve that community, right? Right, right. And so it, it's a business. Now, someone mm-hmm. could say, oh, you're talking about money. Yes, it's a business. Right. And so a lot of those things, you know, as we wanted to do in this program now, we're kind of now we have to fast track them. Right. Because we're talking to our legislators. Mm-hmm. We're talking to congressional leaders and saying there's got to be get get rid of sequestration. Right. You know, get rid of 100%. this. Give that. Look at this area here. How do we negotiate better with right. payers, encouraging those payers to work uh, closely with us in small hospitals? Because typically payers would look at us like, eh, you don't bring much, you know, to our overall right. volumes. And so, you know, you're, you're you can't threaten to take your covered lives and walk and us care. How would you do it? Right? right. I mean, it's like, OK, you have X amount and we're dealing with systems. I right. have 100 times more than you do. So there was a lot of that that occurred, though, during the pandemic of the M&As, the, the vultures, we call them, that are trying to scoop up hospitals. Now, understand we've done we've done podcasts before on this where, you know, we talk about how they come in and they're getting high fees to sell hospitals. Right. And those communities are devastated. So my my resolve is this. We made it through the pandemic. Right. It's great to hear the National Rural Health Association tell us that fewer hospitals closed in the last two years than the previous two years before because of the provider relief funds and the PPP mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of those things. That's great. But now we're back on our own. Right. And we're going to face the same challenges that we faced, mm-hmm. you know, pre-pandemic, which is looking at how do you how do you take that cost structure you know, you've already cut your staff to the bone. You've cut your services to where you're not, you know, making profit in those areas. So you cut those programs. What else is there left? Right. And hospitals have to figure that out. Now, we've done a good job at that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mm-hmm. looking at services that make money, that make sense, and offering those to our community. Keep our patients here. Right. And so hospitals are not going to be looking for another infusion of cash. Mm-hmm. And those CEOs that think they are, Rachel, are in trouble. Yeah. They're not going to get cash anymore. Yeah. That, that money's not coming from the federal government. Right. They're, they're done. Right. You know, the pandemic comes to a close in, in their eyes, uh, obviously, so dries up the money. So hospitals have to look at new and innovative ways. Mm-hmm. Part of that is partnerships with other small hospitals if you're a rural hospital. And we've done that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a rural health association in, in our state here. Right, right. And then I have one really in, in a geographic area mm-hmm. of Hillsdale and a couple other counties. 
And what we do is it's we're we're talking about where is there opportunity for synergies mm-hmm. and where can we find an opportunity to maybe have pooled resources uh, within obviously the restrictions of the federal laws right, right. Uh, to be able to offer services and keep them in our communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been what we have seen over the last probably three months that we've started to to engage in those discussions about, all right, what does it look like post-pandemic? Right. And that's where we are. Right. And I think, um, you know, one of the things about this that has been somewhat difficult is figuring out, you know, you really have to strike the balance between um, your the different COVID protocols and um, new ways of doing business, like limiting visitors and things like that. We have to balance the fear of those who are still scared with the importance of visitation for patients, that that having the support of their family and their loved ones has a real impact on their care and their health outcomes. Um, So, you know, we've been working through that and we've pretty much reopened to our full visitation policy from prior to the pandemic. Um, But there are also some things, I mean, it it feels to me right now that we're kind of, it's exciting, but it's also a little nerve-wracking because it's kind of like when you're uh, learning to ride your bike and you just took the training wheels off and and you've done it okay a couple times, but now you're going to go a lot farther by yourself. Well, you're scared. And yeah, it's (laughs) it's exciting, but it's a little scary at the same time because, again, like you said, we don't necessarily have that safety net, but this really is going to be a time where we have to figure out, you know, as rural hospitals and rural healthcare providers, we have to use this opportunity and what COVID showed us about the importance of rural hospitals and their existence, we have to take that message forward and advocate for a better system to keep rural hospitals financially stable. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're fortunate here that we are able to implement the growth strategy that you have put forward that's very aggressive to grow our hospital and grow our profits, not cut our expenses, Mm -hmm. like you said, because you can't eventually you're going to hit the bone. You can't cut Mm -hmm. your way to success. But there are rural hospitals that they don't have that flexibility because they can't make investments. They don't have the cash on hand to grow, to build new service lines, to acquire practices. No credit rating to to do do, Right, right. So, you know, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see what happens in those scenarios mm-hmm. over the next several months? And is this going to be a, uh, you know, th- now is when we're going to see those places mm-hmm. close or maybe uh, maybe they'll take advantage of the rural emergency hospital mm-hmm. new designation coming in 23. Um, you know, it's it's we're going to be living in the hopefully post-pandemic world, never yeah. the post-COVID world, no. but it's changed how we've done business. And and what of that is going to continue to add strain mm-hmm. to these hospitals that are struggling so much that they're just barely keeping their doors open? You know, spot on. I mean, we could close in prayer on that, yeah. on what you just said. Um, so my, how long have you been in healthcare? When did you enter? Um, so I, I first entered healthcare yeah. in 2013 when the Affordable Care Act was being implemented. So a tumultuous time in the industry. Yeah. Um, I was in for, I want to say, two or two right. and a half years and then came back into healthcare in 2019, which was six right. months before the so COVID-19 pandemic. So you've got a good five years in. So, yeah. And you've been mm-hmm. in big systems and, and small systems. And so, all right, here's yeah. a million dollar question. Mm-hmm. What's your prediction? Um, of those smaller hospitals that are already really struggling? How, yeah. How, how do you think that we are going to get 
the attention of those policymakers. What's your prediction? Do you think that the priorities are going to be focused elsewhere? You know, I think that there is so much that, um, that that's COVID-related, and there's a lot that's for healthcare in general. And I do think it's going to be hard to get the rural voice out there to be loud enough for there to be enough time and attention devoted to creating policy that is going to help sustain those types of organizations. And, you know, for for our perspective on, you, you kind of mentioned our perspective about, um, you know, systems and large systems swallowing up rural hospitals. If you've ever listened to two and a half minutes of an episode of Rural Health yeah. Rising, you've probably yeah. heard something about that. But, um, you know, maybe maybe there will be new ways to partner mm-hmm. with systems that still provide local governance because that's the real problem we have mm-hmm. with the systemization. It's not the, you know, um, opportunities for synergy or for mm-hmm. additional support. It's the lack of local governance because that is when services close and that's when patients mm-hmm. and residents suffer. So, you know, unfortunately, I think the hospitals that would be um, best benefit from that mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to demand that type of yeah, uh, setup. And a lot of times, you know, that type of setup is sold to people as if this is what the, you're going to still have full control. Oh, sure. But then it doesn't stay that way. All right. Um, so, so, so you have faith, though. I do. I believe I, in it. I believe, it, I believe it's going to work. I think that— It's going to take a lot of work. I think there are going to be some that are still going to close. Absolutely. Um, but I think— this is going to be an opportunity for a lot of rural hospitals, yes, to redefine how they do things, yeah. how they see themselves, um, and how they approach their relationship with their community. And we're already starting to see big hospitals do that, right? In Michigan, mm-hmm. you've heard the recent uh, downsizing, staff layoffs. We got our right. Becker's report not too long yeah. ago. Yeah, I think that's part hospitals of that feeling America. of like it's the the excitement of, okay, we feel like we're starting to get out of COVID, yeah. but then now, you see the struggle again, right? And in, in, in February, across the healthcare industry, hospitals were reporting losses. There weren't as many um, COVID admissions, mm-hmm. and there were not as many ER no. admissions. Even if you know the COVID numbers weren't necessarily on top of the normal numbers they would have had, if COVID numbers became part of your normal numbers, um, and then those are down, it's like okay, now we're having to not only lose the safety net, right, but now the environment is such that volumes are down as well. Right. So it's kind of a, a double whammy in this process of finally like stepping out and away from the pandemic. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's hopefully that changes. And, yeah. I, and I wonder how much of that is behavioral with um, with people still being a little afraid or not as quick to go seek health care when they mm-hmm. need it. Does it have to do with people having still been inside a lot or um, not doing all of their normal activities? Therefore, there's less opportunity for them to get injured, for them to catch, uh, you know, the flu from somebody, um, those kinds of things. So I think it could be a combination because usually this time of year is a higher time of year in terms of volume because of, you know, a lot of times cold weather and illness because of that. Mm -hmm. But it, this year, that was not what happened. And that's across the industry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is. And uh, so you've got passion. 
and anybody that talks to you. I was at an event on Friday, and a local radio announcer came to me and said, man, that Rachel, she's, and and we talked 10 minutes all about Rachel. And, and uh, <laughs> I led most of that discussion too, I just want you to know. But you, you see that passion. And Rachel, I think what's going to, what has to happen, not a lot of, not a lot of people are like this, but there's an old guard still at a lot of hospitals. Yeah. These are the 62 to 68 year old guys who don't want to reinvent themselves, guys and gals, mm-hmm. who just feel that, all right, we're out of the pandemic. Whew, now we can take a breath. You cannot. No, no. You, you have to reinvent yourself mm-hmm. in the new market. Right. Because people have learned during the pandemic how to use telehealth. Right. They're using teledocs and they're using mm-hmm. all of these things. They're calling in their pharmacies. They're doing all this. Yeah. Stuff. And telehealth can cross state lines in a lot of scenarios. It sure does. And so we're li- we have to we have to bend and contour to where that market is going. But at the end of the day, the community still needs a community hospital. Right. So we can't lose sight of that. And so, you know, passion. Mm-hmm. Is what's needed, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's a heck of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. This is no longer an opportunity to coast. Right. And for those CEOs who are saying, oh, I got one more year, man, I- I'm encouraging you, step out of the way if if that's your thought process. Mm-hmm. Because you can't afford one more year of coasting. Right. This requires a significant amount of attention. You and I are texting each other at 11 o'clock at night. Sending emails back and forth. Why? It's not because we like to talk to each other all the time, even though you're cool. The reality <laughs> of it is, is we have business to do. Yeah. And we're wearing 10 different hats and we're exhausted. Eight to five is not enough time. It's not even, that's that's like, it gets us started. Um, right. But here's my point. The point is, if healthcare around the country is going to rise and, be, and define themselves as something new and bolder, they've, they've got to have the passion and the drive and mm-hmm. then, Rachel, the other issue as we close today, they've got to have the advocacy. Yes. The problem is a lot of our rural hospitals get caught. They're, they're not able to sit at the big table, right? right? You know, I can't go to the big group and say, well, I'm JJ and I'm Hillsdale. They're going to look at me and go, oh, you're Hillsdale. You know, right. we have one of our small offices is the size of your facility. Right. right? right. And so they're going to discount us. And um, so, so you have that challenge. But advocacy in the sense of congressional advocacy or state mm-hmm. advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, that's the most important thing. Build a relationship with your legislature. Right. You know, I don't care what side of the aisle because we have to be nonpartisan here. Right. Exactly. You know, I've got friends on both sides of the aisle. And it's important. You've right. got to set aside party politics and say what is best for my community. And you got to start having meaningful conversations and dialogue with your congressional leaders right. and your state leaders about here's what we're facing. Now, why yeah. would that interest a congressional or a state leader? You're a politician at heart. Why would it? Why would they care? I can say what I think, but yeah, I don't me. know if it's going to be the same place you're going with okay. this. But, um, you know, I, I think to sell it to them, maybe to, to get them interested. Yeah. I would say, you know, this is going to have significant economic impact on your community if your hospital is not sustainable because it's a huge employer. The hospital buys a lot of goods and services within your community, injects a ton into your economy. 100%. We didn't rehearse this. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And also, you're not going to get any new employers to come in. If you don't have health care because employers know that they are going to struggle to attract employees to communities that don't have health care. And typically in a rural community, an employer, if they're bringing in 100 jobs, they're not going to be able to fill all 100 of those jobs with people who already live here. The talent pool is just not there. The talent pool is not there. So here's you hit the nail on the head. Advocacy occurs because you sit down with your congressional leaders and say your 
the district you represent is going to be decimated. Right. There'll be loss of significant jobs. Mm-hmm. Usually healthcare is second, third largest employer in the community. Right. You're going to lose all those jobs. And then the obviously the the revenue mm-hmm. generated from all of the services yeah. that we provide, the, money the purchases into that your we make, local yeah, economy. we call it downstream revenue, right? I mean, it runs downstream because the money we make here gets spent in this community. Right. And so all of that's impacted. Ultimately, if people can't find jobs, they're going to move out of your community, which mm-hmm. means that your in value of people you represent now is shrunk. Mm-hmm. What do you risk? A redistricting of a map that says Hillsdale lost 10,000 people. Now you're going to be in a congressional district over here. Right. There's a lot to lose for politicians when it comes to this. Generally speaking, politicians want large spheres of influence. Okay. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. want large amounts of people that they can, you know, represent in Congress or in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. When you take your largest two or three employers out of this mix in those communities, those communities die. Right. So they have a vested interest for the economy of those communities in which they live, as well as to ensure for their own political safeguards that they have a job. Right. And so for all of those reasons, I would encourage those listening today, if you're looking to rise above all of this out of the pandemic, instead of looking at mergers and acquisitions, which we oppose, is you've got to look at having some passion, Uh, and some desire, and work hard to build relationships that are sustainable with your legislators Mm -hmm. and begin talking to them about rolling back the sequestration, rolling back certain things, looking at the rural health bills, being part of that bigger discussion. And I'm telling you, think about this, 435 United States representatives, Mm -hmm. okay? 435 people, that's not a lot of people. No. Representing how many people around this country? So guess what? Millions. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. Your one representative has a big voice, regardless of what party he's in. Right, right. Her. They have a voice. And so get to them mm-hmm. and have the meaningful conversations about get in their ear. They're mm-hmm. going to remember it when they're in committee meetings. They're going to remember it it's whenever It's got to be a very out. personal, face-to-face type of relationship because, you know, people say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And there's a reason for that. Because you Absolutely. don't know the other wheel needs any grease. Absolutely. Right? So so when you have those face-to-face conversations and you share the reality for people of what does this mean, you have to you have to focus on the empathy, but also the uh, consequences for them. And if you're getting pushback, you know, it's important to make sure your community understands what needs to happen and who needs to be involved. Absolutely. Because the community is ultimately going to hold their elected officials accountable for what they did or did not do. But if the community doesn't know that, you know, this is a major issue that needs to be dealt with and that, you know, there's a tactful way to do it. But the community has to recognize that and have an expectation that their elected officials are going to work on this issue for them and help them in this area to benefit their communities. And when they don't, you know, if they had the expectation and then the the elected official doesn't fulfill that, you— you know, are not as likely you, to get elected. Absolutely. Lose your power and influence. So there it is. At the end of the day, there it is. And so the advocacy has to happen. We've we've taken the sidelines far too long in rural health. We have mm-hmm. because we, we have this fear that, well, our voice doesn't matter. We're small. We're, no, you have a representative in Congress just like the big system does. Right. And let your voice be heard. Let them mm-hmm. advocate for rural health. Now, what are we finding out about rural health? Wow. They stepped up to the plate. They're the ones right. who rolled out the vaccinations. They're the ones who provided PPE for their communities. They're the ones who consulted with their school districts. They're the ones who put provisions in place for drive-through testing. That was done 
by rural community hospitals across America. Mm-hmm. If we not, if we would have not had those, could you imagine, Rachel, what would have happened? So I mean, we're rising yeah. from the ashes. Yes, and we have an opportunity before us to redefine healthcare to look different. Has to uh, to be in a different environment, but to sustain your local communities, it's so important. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. If you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO, JJ. Rachel's at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow our podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.